0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered
1: by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Sirius XM 111.
0: Welcome to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Cheryl Coleman, and I'm joined today by my co host,
1: I'm Nick Ashburn.
0: And we're joining you live here on Sirius XM Channel 111 every Thursday from 8 to 10 Eastern. And then we're also replayed during the week. So you can catch us on, on the web or on the app or anytime you need to. You bet. Good. So how's the morning for you, Nick?
1: The morning is great. The, the birds are singing. The sun is out. The <laughs> oh. students are trickling away. Trickling
0: away <laughs> a little bit. So um, let me go through the the lineup of what we've got going on, because I actually do want to sort of plug our last segment. That would be a great segment for folks to call in on. So at 9.30, we have Andre Simon, who's the CEO of Finca Impact Finance. And the question she's working on is, how is technology providing financial opportunities for developing nations and those in poverty, right? So we've got all sorts of things, mobile apps, fingerprint scans, different kinds of technology. And with Andre, we'll explore what's being practiced around the world. World to help those low-income individuals and communities invest in their future. So it could be anything from adopting new technology to scaling a new program to looking at the new strategies and practices. We'll get Andre's opinion on this. And she's been on the ground very much involved in this for, for quite a while. So it'll be a, a, a really uh, insightful discussion, I think.
1: Yeah. Actually, I um With Wharton Impact Investing Partners this year, we looked at a company that was using blockchain technology. um, It had a wide – like, the applicable uses were quite varied, but their target market right now were for refugees. And it was – I mean, blockchain technology is sort of out of my wheelhouse. I'm certainly not an expert. We had had one show
0: where somebody was talking about it, and yes, it was very – Complicated. Yeah,
1: I mean, and then I see, like, from mobile apps to fingerprint scans, and it's sort of one of those things that is like, oh, yeah, this is really happening, and I don't understand it.
0: Yeah. Well, I think one of the things, and we, we saw this a lot with uh, mobile money kinds of things, that a lot of times in some of the developing nations that don't have the full infrastructure, mm-hmm. they're, they're leapfrogging it. They're sort Absolutely. of saying, we don't have to create that infrastructure. What we'll do is we'll create these new technologies that will bypass it entirely. So yeah. I think we'll have some interesting discussions there. Then at 9 o'clock, we will have Josh McCann, who is the CEO and founder of One for the World. And One for the World has an interesting premise and model. It was actually started by Josh when he was a Wharton student here. Um, And part of what they wanted to understand was if you could leverage the university network to have them uh, have graduates and alumni commit to pledging 1% of their their salary to a selected group of charities – what, what kind of power could that do? How do you get them to be inspired to give and give to places that matter? So, you know, being a kind of entrepreneurial student, Josh has started this program, and so we'll hear about how it's going, what he's learned, what there can be insights he can have for other organizations who are trying to um, figure out how you can get millennials to do more. We're giving.
1: Well, and I look forward to speaking to Josh to see how the models evolved, because we were involved very early on, mm-hmm. nearly four years ago, probably. Um, but also, before coming to Wharton, I believe Josh worked for an organization called JPAL. I can't remember the Jameel Poverty, Poverty Action, Action Lab, Lab. Um, which focuses primarily on evidence-based interventions in emerging markets developing countries. So not just funding anything that they really want, but rather you know, things things that really have a strong evidence base. Right. And so in terms of his philanthropic giving through One for the World, I'm wondering if he's using those, you know, putting that to task.
0: Uh-huh. Probably. And then we will close with a segment I think that uh, would be great for folks to call in on because we certainly uh, have our perspectives but want to hear yours as well. And it's really an open segment in some sense talking about some of the the advertising that we've seen from Pepsi and Heineken. Other headlines going on. And so if you've seen those ads, and you have a perspective about about the ads themselves, about the juxtaposition of the ads, and then even about the the use of um, feel-good or controversial advertising by companies that are obviously trying to sell you a product, this would be a great time to call in. And you'd be calling us at 1 844 Warden 844 942 7866. You can also email us at businessradio at SearsXM.com.
1: And, you know, for that segment, you know, there I had also have my own opinions about the, the ads specifically, but also thinking through our guest last week from Patagonia and talking about how they're actually integrating a lot of social impact or pro social practices into the business model itself. And so thinking about what How how do you actually integrate social impact into your business? Yeah, is it just through marketing, or is it really sort of? I I don't want to just say legitimate, but rather you know aligned, aligned with the business, aligned
0: and integrated. Yes, you know, and I think that that's we we find that um, that's a real sweet spot when you can make that happen. It it sometimes fits if you do other things. I mean, Coke has done well with you know the kind of feel good ads, but we'll see we'll see about this panda bears et cetera. So we're going to open the show with. Zav Briggs, who is the VP of Economic Opportunity and Markets for the Ford Foundation. And, uh, you know, Nick, I know we're both really excited to have this segment because there's some interesting, interesting and important news coming out from, from the Ford Foundation. Absolutely. So, Zav, welcome to the show. Thanks so
2: much, Cheryl. Great to be with you guys.
0: Great. So... Why don't you tell us a little bit about the mission of the Ford Foundation? I don't know that a lot of our listeners may know about the details and some of the, the really uh, key of of areas of focus that you guys have.
2: Sure. Well, we are the second largest uh, philanthropy in the world. We've been around about 80 years now. And our core mission is to advance uh, human dignity and social justice um, the major areas of programming are, on one hand, the area that I oversee, economic opportunity and markets. Uh, number two, democracy, rights, and justice. We've been longtime human rights funders around the world. And finally, education, creativity, and, and free expression. Uh, so Ford has been connected to everything from seating the uh, children's television um, uh, movement and Sesame Street many years ago, to the public interest law field, to major universities, um, and community development in America, which of course is an important target for for impact investment. We, uh, like many foundations, provide our grants based on earnings from the endowment, um, so we, we manage a large endowment, and it's in that context that we made a uh, a big announcement recently, as you know.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about that, that big announcement. Tell me, what well, you, yeah, tell me what you guys are going to do, and let's make sure we explain it for the audience. Sure.
2: Well, we announced that we'll be committing a uh, billion dollars over the next 10 years to mission-related investing, uh, meaning we're going to make investments for the first time from our endowment directly um, that have a, a dual objective to them. We're both going to pursue financial return, because that's a must, And also social impact. Uh, We're going to begin in in two sectors that are mature and where we have experience that align with our larger strategy of, of combating growing inequality in the world. One sector is financial inclusion in the emerging markets, and the other is affordable housing in the U.S., and and let's set up the
1: tension here. So we do talk a lot about impact investing here on our show, Dollars and Change. And I think on one hand, maybe our audience understands that, but I'll define it anyway. It's the intention to invest for both a positive financial return and a measurable positive social or environmental impact. Um, that's, that's a broad definition that can take a lot of forms through a lot of different strategies and asset classes. Um, the Ford Foundation, on one hand, has been a leader in something called program related investments um and i'll and I'll allow you to dive into that history a little more, but um that was coming out of the grant making budget and so there's this question, and I think this goes for foundations and their endowments, but also any other sort of public market um, competitive return type of investing that says well um I, you know, I make as much money as I, I want to, and then social impact is relegated to my philanthropy. Um, and they don't cross. We don't consider anything else in our investments right, besides- Right, because there are two
0: different, two different ways of thinking in some sense. There's getting as much money as possible, and then there's the giving the money away.
1: Well, traditionally, that's traditionally, how we thought right, about exactly. it. And, and when you think about getting as much money, it's about risk and return. Um, and so, Zav, I just wanted to talk about how that Conversation may have played out with the endowment, and and just talk a little bit more around the Ford Foundation's history with impact investing broadly, and then how that translated into conversations with with the board.
2: Sure. Well, Nick, uh, to make a, a long story short, <laughs> the, <laughs> the fifty plus years, uh, the, the Ford Foundation really began discovering in the nineteen fifties and sixties in our in our work to help revitalize American cities that there were limits to what uh, traditional grant-making could accomplish. Um, very enterprising, you know, uh, enterprising um, program officers, one of them was a guy named Lou Winnick, a housing economist who fought in the Navy during the war, um, a brilliant, innovative person. He um, really began developing the idea that you could not revitalize uh, America's struggling cities, with philanthropic capital or government uh, spending alone, the private sector would have to play a really important role, and we needed innovative ways of triggering private sector investment. And he had lots of ideas for how philanthropic giving could be catalytic for that. And around about the mid-'60s, he managed to convince the, the Ford board that we should go to the federal government and formally seek permission to make, as you said, investments, whether loans, Equity investments or even uh, credit guarantees, forms of credit enhancement, from the program side of our work, not endowment investment now, but from the, uh, from the grant side, as you said. And the uh, IRS agreed, and that invented the program-related investment tool, the PRI tool, which Ford has spent uh, or invested upwards of $670 million over the, over the last 50 years. Other foundations over time began to adopt that and it's enabled some really fantastic things to happen from micro lending in the global south uh, thanks to a an economist named Muhammad Yunus who walked into a Ford Foundation office in South Asia in the mid 70s and said, I have this crazy idea, poor people can be credit worthy uh, as long as you know how to underwrite well. Um, that's where microfinance was born and we were one of the, if you will, angel investors and helped really build that field. Um, to community development and affordable housing in the u s um, and other fields, so we made PRIs for a very long time, but that was always from the the uh, you know the charitable side uh, of of the house, so to speak, as my boss Darren Walker likes to say that's the that 's the five percent of your assets, not the ninety five percent under tax law, as you guys know, um, private foundations need to spend out at least five percent of their assets. Every year, and that's to ensure that they're actually pursuing a charitable mission; that they're not just foundations on paper. So that's you so way. you'd
1: expanded your toolkit, but you were still using
2: that same five percent. Right. That's exactly right. We were working on that side, so that inherently, you know, capped the this, this scale of, of what we can do. And here's the perhaps the more surprising thing: over the years, we learned a lot about impact investing, particularly in the early decades. Um, you know, learned a lot the hard way, made mistakes, helped to build a field. Share lessons with other investors, and from time to time we actually had to turn away investment prospects because they were they were too good to meet the charitability test that those PRIs have to meet so you know our our council would say um, pRIs are meant to meet a charitable standard that 's why they were permitted in the first place. You have to say no to that investment, which was a shame because mm. there from time to time a uh, you know a, a, a private fund manager might walk in the door and say i'm investing in these really innovative Financial products in the emerging markets, and they can expand access to credit and payment, and so on. Um, and we can earn a, a, a good return. And the returns were actually too attractive for us to invest in with our PRI's.
0: And talk about so now, yeah. Talk about the tension sure. there, right? You know that it, it was a good idea, but it was had too much of a return, and so it was something you couldn't do with your charitable dollars.
2: Yeah. So this is actually, you know, a, a, a matter of IRS oversight. It wasn't that Ford didn't want to make the investments, right. but under IRS uh, guidance, the, the, that, those program-related investments we've been making for 50 years now, they've got to meet a charitability standard. Well, the IRS uh, developed a second standard uh, called mission-related investments, or MRIs, um, and they have to meet a, a prudent investment uh, investor standard. So they are meant to allow a prudent fiduciary, for example, managing a foundation endowment to invest in ways that promote financial return, but also seek some kind of mission related impact. As Nick said, it can be uh, primarily social, things like poverty reduction, quality employment, access to health care, things like that, or primarily environmental, or both. And, um, you know, we, we had investment prospects uh, for some number of years now that would have worked as, as MRIs, but. Ford was not able to make them as a matter of policy. We had our endowment managers on one side of the house, uh, doing fairly traditional and, and very high caliber um, asset management, and then we had the program side where we were making PRIs and grants. And you know, certain investment prospects sort of fell between the cracks because we weren't uh, in a position to make them.
1: Yeah,
0: and we're joined by Zav Briggs, who's the VP of Economic Opportunity and Markets for the Ford Foundation, and we're unpacking the recent announcement that they're going to invest one billion. Uh, of mission related investing. So, what that means and what some of the impact is going to be of that.
1: And, Zav, what makes so? I, I actually, you know, I'm going to share a quick story is, you know, another foundation that I'm familiar with in Texas, you know, sort of had this, I guess, epiphany. Um, they're not, I don't think that they're doing mission related investments, but this came out of the program related investment mm-hmm. side. And they said, "Okay, we were giving grants to the school district to buy. You know, we're, we care as a foundation um, at, for data-driven student learning that that can improve learning outcomes for you know K through 12 students. We can give grants to the school district um, to buy technology that we think, you know, we hope that moves the needle on that. And then they sort of realized, well, hey, we found a technology that we really believe in. Let's make an equity investment in that company to help it scale and get into more districts." So they sort of saw the catalytic nature or scalable nature of this, you know, of an equity investment, but it's going to be a very commercial return. So, you know, that's, I think, the type of investment that, you know, some foundations may be able to make the charitable case that match a PRI, but also could come out of the the endowment with the right sort of return profile. Does that resonate with you or are there other examples of, of things that you could give us?
2: It does resonate, Nick. That's that's exactly the sort of investment. Again, if it's made with uh, with a, a, a market return or a near-market return in mind, and it also has a social impact, as you were describing, that's exactly the sort of thing that would tend to qualify as as an MRI. Um, here's an interesting thing. I mean, in that same case, let's imagine that there were an earlier stage to that, as there surely was where the technology itself was being developed, let's you know, to call it the R&D stage or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, that stage might well be suited to a, to a straight grant, you know, um, a, a social subsidy where you say, I don't expect repayment. I believe that this technology holds great promise. Someone has to help um, m- make it commercializable, if you will. At a very early stage, it might be a good grant investment or it might be a PRI investment. Once you have a business prospect that's offering... Um, a more competitive, attractive return in the traditional sense, and the, the promise, of course, of affecting the lives of, of many kids um, in Texas and beyond, then you're in MRI territory, and it's, that's not a bad example, you know, of how certain technologies or interventions can graduate from kind of the seed stage to a more mature stage.
1: Well, and that's sort of when I when I describe PRI's at least for early on in the the Ford Foundation history. Um, you know, expanding the toolkit. Yes. And I just think that there's an opportunity. You know, we can be seeding innovation. You know, philanthropic capital can, you, you know, play that risky, you know, risk capital type of role. Um, and I know that in our circles in your circles, our Wharton social impact circles like that's well understood. But I just think in sort of the zeitgeist of America, the world that we don't fully grasp like how we can best seed innovation in that
2: way. I think you're right. I think that the broad, you know, the sort of prevailing conception is you've you've got charity way over here, and uh, the broader capital markets over there, and you know, never the twain shall meet. And we need to change that because it's it's much more of a continuum, and we've behaved that way for a long time here at Ford. But as you were uh, as you were saying, we've sort of had a, a tool missing in the toolkit, and that's why we came to the judgment that. It's important for Ford to make mission related investments. Um, we've got expertise and experience, uh, so we're, we're prepared to do it and to share what we learn. And crucially, The marketplace is ready. We also had to feel that. There have to Mm -hmm. be investable opportunities to let us deploy this scale of capital, and we came to the judgment that there are.
0: And, Zav, I think that's a a really excellent point because part of what what we're seeing, and I think what others like you are seeing as well, is that there is now in the zeitgeist, as Nick might say, (laughs) a, a real sense about you can innovate products this way. There's a real opportunity for you to think about how your product and the thing that you're trying to create can be profitable but also Really create a kind of social impact that you you want to make happen, and the, as more entrepreneurs are thinking that way, we're going to be sort of having more opportunities for investment and and uh, inspiration. I think.
1: Well, we're seeing an evolution of the um, of the you know professional asset managers. You know, they're starting to get on board with this. Um, and I guess, you know, as you had conversations with the board, or, I, you know, I don't know if it was you or how, the, you know, maybe it was Darren, the the president of the foundation. Um, but what was the case? What, what made it the right time for you guys to have this conversation?
2: Well, uh, so Darren asked me to lead a process to put together the best strategy we could. And what we did was to, um, first of all, tap all the expertise inside the foundation. So created a Sorry to get into the weeds here, Nick. But no, the weeds are problem? good. We like the weeds. <laughs> the inside story. Um, you know, I, I tapped my, my peers, the chief investment officer, the uh, chief financial officer, and the general counsel of the Ford Foundation, because we really wanted to look at this thing from all angles very, very carefully. And to give a quick example of how important that is, we wanted, for example, to say, what if we do commit um, a, a large um, portion of the endowment um, scaled gradually, of course, deployed gradually over a decade. But what if we deploy a large amount, say a billion dollars, and another financial crisis comes along? We wanted to model that. We wanted to think about risk to the financial health of the organization very, very carefully. What if we start, as we will, in the private markets, meaning primarily investing in private equity funds and and real estate uh, for the sake of investing in affordable housing. Um, what if we do that and so we have a, a large and growing portfolio that's relatively illiquid? You know, it can't uh, very quickly be converted to cash or, or exited. Um, what then? Um, how would that affect our ability to fund our core operations, including our offices around the world, our grants, et cetera? So we wanted to really you know, look before we, uh, before we leapt, so to speak, and it was crucial to have those different perspectives inside the foundation, also to tap outside experts to learn from their experiences, and I had the chair of our investment committee working with me uh, day in and day out, and uh, the New York Times recently ran a story on him and on Darren, um, referring to Peter Natashie, who's been just a tremendous supporter and, and guide of the effort and of, and of mine personally, and um, Peter you know, freely acknowledges he began as a skeptic and then he was converted by the evidence that uh, there is a maturing and growing marketplace. Um, but that was essentially the process. And uh, over time, you know, we rewrote our investment policy statement line by line, very detailed document that guides the, uh, the investment of the entire endowment. Um, so this was, this was very step-by-step. Step. And over a series of meetings, we, we built the confidence of the board Uh, answered their questions, created safeguards, for example, to deal with that liquidity risk that I referred to, Um, really wanted to do this in a very careful way. And the best uh, feeling for me was not only that the board ultimately and unanimously endorsed this, but they felt really good and really proud of the way the process had worked, too, and that meant a lot to us.
0: This is Dollars and Change on Sirius XM one eleven. We're here with Zav Briggs, VP of Economic Opportunity and Markets for the Ford Foundation. We're talking about the the announcement that they will be investing one billion dollars from their endowment into impact investing.
1: You bet. And and so Zav, when you guys chose, you know, funds or affordable housing, so real estate. You said you sort of did that long-term risk analysis. Um, was there something about investing in affordable housing, which I think makes intuitive sense for the for social the mission. impact? Yeah, absolutely. What? How does that play into you know making it a prudent financial decision too?
2: Well, there's a, there's a track rate record, Nick, of, of demonstrated returns. Um, Ford has been a part, along with with many other players in the private sector, philanthropy world, and and government, creating. You know, an entire field, an ecosystem of affordable housing developers and managers and intermediaries and so on over the past 40-plus uh, years. And um, the, the number of, of developers and investment funds that are mature, that are highly sophisticated, um, that can uh, either acquire and redevelop or, or manage uh, real estate assets in ways that are efficient – that are responsive to, uh, to tenants, let's say in the case of low-income tenants, has really grown and grown in a very impressive way. I think it's no uh, exaggeration to say that, that the U.S. is the, is the world leader in, in that area, um, such that other countries come to the U.S. to learn you know, how to grow, a, for example, a nonprofit housing sector and how to make public and private finance work together to create affordable housing. Um, so, you know, we, we judge based on, on real evidence, not just hope that we can earn the, the kinds of returns that we need to in the uh, in the MRI program. And here's what's crucial, too. Those financial returns are, are are absolutely essential because over time we want the MRI portfolio, in addition to the main endowment, of course, to be contributing to that 5% payout every year. We want the right. MRI program, in other words, to, to help pay its way. So we've got to earn those financial returns.
0: And do you think that uh, the kind of thought process you went through, can help other foundations as they're thinking about whether they should move into this area. You think you're going to be a, a trailblazer that helps bring other people along in a bigger way?
1: Well, we had the CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation on just last week, uh-huh. talking about some of their culture shifts within the, the the organization. But then we did get a little more into their program related investing, and I think the elephant in the room was Hey, hey Gates, what, what happened with <laughs> Ford recently? <laughs>
2: Well, you know, Nick and Cheryl, um, we, I want to first of all credit the foundations that that really did blaze the trail, um, making MRIs. Ford is not the first. This is the the largest commitment we know of by a by a private foundation. Um, and the evidence so far is that it is spurring really important conversations in the field. So we hear that from chief investment officers, from foundation presidents, um, in the in the very best spirit, of course. And I, I would like to think. I mean, every institution needs to decide what's appropriate for it. Uh, what does mission-related mean? What's essential? What are the right oversight, you know, measures and, and safeguards and whatnot? What's the right pace at which to make uh, a new commitment if if that's what a foundation is doing? Um, but we we would like to think, and indeed, that is one of our goals: is not just to construct a, a high-performing portfolio. But to help accelerate this momentum in the field, not only with foundations, by the way, but with other kinds of institutional investors right. as well. Um, and even pension funds, Sovereign wealth funds yeah. and individuals, absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
1: And Zav, you know, I, I can't, you know, not ask and this Nick, question. And this is going to
0: have to be the last question.
1: Well, I know. And I, I can't not ask this question, given that you're a Ph.D. I think you're sort of on loan from MIT, if you will. Um, and then, um, you know, we're here at Wharton we're in the data around this, we're doing, we're actively doing research around these topics. Um, What are some of the areas that you see most promising um, for research that might also help bring people along on this journey?
0: Right, to answer some of the lingering concerns around this.
2: Well, our view is that most importantly, we need to build up the sort of data that is, if you will, the, the coin of the realm, the gold standard in the investment world, and that is um, large representative samples um, in multiple asset classes of of investment performance. Um, and that includes, since we're talking about double or even triple bottom line investing, that, of course, includes the, the, the non-financial return side or the social environmental impact side. And that is happening. Um, It needs to accelerate, and we need um, a broader, more representative sample. We don't, any of us, I think, want to be in a world in which someone comes along and says, well, it's interesting that you have a pool of investments, maybe a set of funds and the performance data on them, but you're cherry picking. You know, you aren't Mm. being honest to the range of successes and failures. Um, That's not the sort of evidence that, you know, that meets the test.
0: Absolutely. Well, Zav, this has been a great discussion. We're really looking forward to seeing what what continues to go on with the Ford Foundation.
1: Send our best to your team, Christine and Graham, <laughs> who are good friends.
0: Exactly. So this was a conversation with Zav Briggs, who's VP of Economic Opportunity and Markets for the Ford Foundation. We're going to take a little bit break, but when we come back, we will be joined by Andre Simon, who's the CEO of Finca Impact Finance, for I think a related but different perspective on on this whole idea of how you invest your capital to make the world a better place. So thank you for joining us.